You're listening to the Maximum Advisor Podcast, a show that empowers financial advisors to set goals, take action, and grow their practice. Your host, Chip Munn, is an award-winning advisor and CEO whose advice is regularly featured in Business Insider, Thrive Global, and The Streets Retirement Daily. Listen in as he sits down with industry experts to talk about building a practice and making an impact. Welcome back to Maximum Advisor. I'm your host, Chip Munn, and today I'm with Meg Bartelt. Meg is the founder and lead planner at Flow Financial Planning, and we met through a Facebook group and have gotten to know each other a little bit. Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, Meg, there are a lot of things that interested me about you and your practice, but for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit about you and how you got here. Sure. Well, let's see. My firm, Flow Financial Planning, is a little over four years old. And prior to founding my own firm, I worked for six, seven years part-time at two other fee-only RAAs. Right now, I live in Bellingham, Washington, but at that time, I was living in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, actually. And prior to that, I'm actually a career changer. So prior to switching over to financial planning in around 2009, uh, I was in the tech industry myself. And I say that because I now work with women in the tech industry. So yeah, I came out of college into the tech industry and then maybe 12 years in decided to change careers and got a master's in financial planning at that point, mostly for my own self-confidence purposes. And a few years ago, decided to start my own firm so I could actually work with the kind of people I wanted to work with and do the kind of work I wanted to do and just let the Meg flag fly. I like it. I'm going to have to make a note, the Meg flag, because I I think that we should all do that. It's funny. You and I were talking a little bit before the show about how recently it's been a big change for some of us who are kind of from that more old school kind of place. And I think that there are a lot of us who never realized that we got to fly our own flag. Yeah. Not to paint it with too broad a brush, but it feels to me now Looking back on a lot like the old IBM, you could always spot an IBM guy. You could always spot a financial planner because they all dress the same, look the same, white men. Sure. And so I'm curious, and you touched on it there. Why is it that you you worked for another firm for a while? Why did you decide to break out and start Flow Financial Planning? Well, there was both a push and a pull there. I mentioned that I was working part-time for these two firms, which was tremendously lucky and privileged because I was also having my two children at the time. So it was really nice to not have to work full time when I had two young daughters. I started working in one RAA. It was very small. It was a founder and an administrative assistant. And she was very emblematic of that first wave of fee-only RAAs in that she was in her upper 60s and had no succession plan and really, really wanted one and saw me, even though I was very new to the field, in fact, that would be my first job in the field, saw me as a potential successor. And I thought, ooh, that is an amazing opportunity. I haven't worked a day in my life in this career. And already uh, I have this, this possibility of maybe being this person's successor, buying the firm. So I started working with her. And I just want to be clear, I am not disparaging the value she provided to her clients, but the kind of work she did did not interest me. It was very investment focused, 
and it was working with the retiree set. So again, very typical of the RAA space in that there was, you know, asset minimums, working with older people, very investment oriented. And it was great learning grounds for me, but didn't really speak to me at all. I mean, it's intellectually interesting, but didn't sort of pull any heartstrings. That firm got bought by another local firm, much the same approach. Again, high minimums, investment oriented, retiree set. I worked for them for a little bit. And to be honest, the push away from that was actually they didn't want to keep me because I made it clear that I was interested in this more comprehensive financial planning, working with younger clients, like to work on like cash flow and buying homes and sort of all these things typical of the accumulation period of people's lives. And that just wasn't a fit for their firm. And the principle there was fantastic and that he just made that very clear to me. I mean, it wasn't personal at all. He, in fact, was quite complimentary of my skills as a financial planner. And so at that point, it just coincided with some big changes in my personal life and that my husband and now two young daughters decided to move cross country. And so we left Virginia and three months later ended up in Bellingham, Washington. And I just did some sort of sporadic contract work in financial planning because I still liked it. I was not going to be able to be an employee at a firm that did financial planning the way I wanted to. In Bellingham, if I wanted to be an employee, I was going to have to work for one of the few million-dollar minimum type fee-only RAAs, and it just wasn't interesting. So really, there was no choice but to start my own firm if I wanted to do financial planning the way I wanted to do it. It's a story that we hear much more often these days is... Yeah, I think Alan Moore talks about being unemployable. I I certainly (laughs) fall into that category. And the more clear you are about what you want, the harder that becomes to work inside of another system. Now, you're as specific as anybody I know in the business as to who you work with. So you really have taken the idea of niching down. I'm a niche, not a niche uh, of niching down (laughs) to... Really, it's nth degree as far as I'm concerned. So tell our listeners a little bit about who it is that you work with. And yeah, I think it'll become obvious as to why, but really kind of what the passion behind that was for you. So my firm specializes in working with women who are in their early to mid-career in the tech industry. And I'm always somewhat tickled, you know, sort of a... It's complimentary, but I'm also sort of amused when people talk about how narrow that niche is because there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of women in their early to mid careers in tech in this country. And my firm is three people. So, you know, I could get way more specific. It would still be far too many people for us to work with. But even that is so much farther than most people go. Right. Sure. Uh, the, the average website that says we work with retirees, people with money, sudden wealth, <laughs> yes. widows and orphans. And so just to have somebody who is that clear is unusual. So what has been the benefit to you? What do you feel like is a real plus to being, we'll say, more specific? Yeah, it makes almost all of my decisions in this business easier because I know exactly who whom I'm talking to. So when it comes to marketing, I know, you know, if I'm creating content, I have a, a regular blog. I know exactly what I should be writing about in my blog. I mean, I'm, I'm now writing literally a series of blog posts about specific elements of planning for Airbnb's IPO. 
right? We have a bunch of clients who are from Airbnb. They clearly know a bunch of other people who are Airbnb, so I can get really specific on my content, which resonates with people and means I don't really have to rack my brain to figure out what to write about. So it makes content easier. All aspects of marketing, I know which existing professional groups to go out and become an active participant in. They are women in tech groups. You know, I don't have to go to BNI or whatever those sort of generic networking groups are. I wouldn't be able to do that. That sort of marketing and sales just gives me the heebie-jeebies and I would just curl up in a ball. So it makes everything about marketing easier. And then it also dictates what kind of approach am I going to take to tech stack and what kind of deliverables do I want? You know, we moved everything to Google Drive just so that we could easily share and interact with clients on spreadsheets, sort of analytical spreadsheets, because my clients are very familiar with sharing docs through Google Drive. And let's see, when it comes to other services, we provide, you know, we don't just provide investment management, for example, we provide, we call it annual advisory services, but it's just this, all your finances are belong to us sort of thing. So we talk about open enrollment and we know that we need to be experts on everything stock compensation because we just have this very specific notion of this person that we are serving. What would she want? What does she need? It really takes the guesswork out of almost everything. So you mentioned marketing. And so I'm curious, you've been out on your own for four years. Did you bring clients with you or did you start from zero? And either way, how do you find the prospecting to be? What, what has been the driver for you in terms of growth? So I started with zero clients and my marketing has been primarily content marketing, right? There are not enough women in tech in Bellingham, Washington for a viable business, which is why I am a virtual business. The fact that I'm virtual and all my marketing is going to be on the intertubes means I have to embrace content marketing. And so that's what I've done since day one. I just drank the Kool-Aid about You've got to have content marketing and go out there and just provide value where you can online. And so I've done that consistently since day one and the first year just sucked. I mean, it really did. I got very few clients. I don't know if I got fewer clients than like the average advisor just starting from scratch, but man, it was not a lot. And it was really hard emotionally because, you know, as the metaphor goes, I was planting all these seeds but I couldn't see anything growing yet. I didn't have any reassurance that what I was doing was actually worthwhile. And it wasn't until probably month 10 that I got my first prospect call request from someone that I didn't have some sort of social connection to. That person had found a blog post I had written and that like just changed my mindset. It's like, oh, this works. And it wasn't that it took off from there. It was just that was when the flywheel started to turn and it just sort of gradually spun faster and faster until now. It's actually quite easy to do the marketing, the prospecting, because I have this sort of existing wealth of information spread across the internet that has my name smeared across it. For sure. And I think that a big part, it sounds like, that changed was all of a sudden, just that little bit of success is a tipping point to your confidence. And so all of a sudden, 
you're willing to, I would think, go in just that much farther because you're starting to see kind of that compounding effect of all the things that you've done. Absolutely. I mean, there's just been this iterative process since the beginning that the more success I have with attracting women in their early to mid-career in tech, the more willing I am to be really specific in every aspect of serving them. No, I will not vary my service to accommodate this different kind of client. No, I will not change my fee model to accommodate this different kind of client. No, I will not write generic blog posts about whether it's better to be pre-tax or Roth. Because yes, there is this, this just cumulative confidence that builds every time a woman in tech tells me, I saw your blog post or I saw your website and it spoke to me. I saw myself in that description. I hope anybody who's listening would rewind and and listen to that again, because I think that's one of the things that we don't tell people enough is that authenticity ultimately is, you know, people just want to be heard and, and we aren't any different. And I think that by speaking our truth, it's much easier. I'm not very investment centric. That's not my thing. My partner runs our portfolios. So my clients don't ask me about that kind of thing, you know? And so you end up with, particularly in your case, the ability to really just speak directly to somebody. And I think that that first time that anybody that you don't know, yeah, I still have the first client I ever got. It's been 22 years that wasn't a family member or a friend of my parents who gave me more than a hundred thousand dollars. Like I still call him on holidays. I mean, it's just one of those things that it's such a big thing when all the work pays off. And and so in the recovery community, they say, don't quit coming before the miracle happens. And and Mm. I think that your example is a great one of how that's also true in our business. Now you talked about being hard starting off. Are there still difficulties now? I mean, what would you consider to be your biggest kind of struggles or obstacles? Yes, there are always struggles. They just change. And I certainly would not trade them for the struggles in the first year of just having a crisis of confidence of whether this was even going to work. I don't collapse into a puddle of tears huddled against my husband saying that Maybe he needs to go find a new job now anymore, as I did in the first year. I've had tremendous combination of lucky timing, skill, whatever it is. My prospect funnel, my client growth has been consistently good. We regularly have a wait list because we really meter the number of new clients whom we're willing to start with every month. So I think for me, probably the biggest struggle is that tension between just this desire to grow as fast as I can, just grow, 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 more clients, more money, more prestige, bigger, bigger, bigger. Because I think, especially as I'm still so young in my firm ownership, there's just sort of an addiction to growth for growth's sake. And you know, maybe there's still a little bit left over from those first few years of, I'm not even paying my mortgage with what I'm making from this business. So there's still this instinct to grow as fast as sort of the prospect funnel will allow me to, but tension between that and really wanting to have a life I enjoy, which is a significant amount of time not working. And I have two employees and I want them to have a lovely life also. 
So for me, it is actually the balance between the personal and business boundary that is the biggest ongoing struggle. So when you look at that, I'm curious because I think it's that way for a lot of people. And I've been on the other side, right, where I did grow for growth's sake and did that. And you get to a point where, honestly, growth can be harder to manage than contraction, Mm. I think, because contraction decisions become easy. Mm. They're not fun, but they're not complicated. Growth can be an entirely different thing. So I'm curious, how do you make that decision? So when you sit and you think that, I'm sure there are people who are listening who can't comprehend the notion of a waiting list. Yeah. And so how do you make the decision about how you throttle that back and forth? Through regular attention to it, honestly, I am a big proponent of because I have benefited so much from having a lot of people, both personally and professionally in my life, who know me well enough that I can just have these conversations with and just bounce ideas off of them. And I think outside my head, either by writing or by talking. And so just having these people to talk with helps me. I have a a business coach. I've been working with her since month seven. I have a few study groups of close colleagues and friends. And then also I have both my family and my employees because my decisions about growth affect everyone in my family and my employees. And then the longer that this firm exists, the more institutional knowledge we have about what is it like when we grow at three new clients a month? Well, that was kind of intense. I don't think we want to do that again. Ooh, one client a month. That was really nice. Like I just felt you know, my shoulders could, could let down. and I didn't feel tense all the time. So we go along with one client for a month and and then maybe I start to feel greedy. And so we ratchet back up and, whoa, that's tense again. Then we ratchet it back down. So it's not as if I have arrived at the right answer and have the maturity to stick to it. But I am regularly reevaluating how is business working for me right now? And if it is not working well, why? And what can I do to make it work better for me? And the longer I'm in business, sort of the more input I have to make that decision on. Sure. And it's definitely, again, it's a constant process. And I think that what I heard and took away from what you said so far is that it seems to me like the ability to pace yourself, the ability to have a waiting list. And I would tie that really closely to the content marketing that you Mm -hmm. talked about earlier. One of the things that I talk with advisors about a lot is the idea of marketing in general. You want it to be a vending machine, not a slot machine. You want to know what you're going to put in and press the button and have an Mm -hmm. idea over time of what it is that you can put out versus just continually throwing different, you know, and changing and doing different things. And I I think that your approach seems to be a testament to that, to where the prospects that I have to think that you're getting to on the wait list, they started with you 18 months ago Mm -hmm. or two years ago, or found things that you wrote back then, that if you hadn't done it, they wouldn't be here now. And I think that that's important in looking at long-term, just the predictability of things. And so I think that you've obviously done a really good job of that. And so I think folks could learn a lot. What would you consider to be kind of your biggest success? What's the biggest win? 
I mean, honestly, for me, the biggest win is I actually managed to grow a firm that pays me enough money that I don't have to worry about it at this point, because for the first two years, I did worry about it. And I'm still close enough to that so that just the fact that I am making ample money through my firm is a huge success for me at this point. Probably there's competition for the top slot of biggest success in that I got to grow this firm exactly the way I wanted to, right? I get to talk the way I want to. I get to dress the way I want to. I get to write blogs the way I want to because, you know, I was an employee for a lot of years and I was an employee at RAAs populated by perfectly lovely people who were just very different from me. And it's just sort of tiring. And one thing I always think about is the last RAA I worked for was run by very conservative Christian people. And they had a certain sort of office culture of, you know, you dress up as a woman, you wear makeup and you do your hair and all your communication is very formal. You're calling everyone Mrs. This and Mr. That, and you don't really put jokes into emails. And at some point I got reprimanded for being too casual, which was a legit criticism at that firm. But it just revealed to me that that wasn't the right firm for me. I curse. I don't dress up. I'm casual. So getting to grow a firm that just reflects who I am has been really wonderful because it's just so much easier. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's a lot easier probably to do that than to unwind it of going Mm -hmm. too far down the road of not being yourself and then having to back your way back out of that. After you've built a business and a persona, I know plenty of people who have gone that route who went too far down the, oh. this isn't me because of whether it's the money, the, you know, whatever, the growth for growth's sake. And now all of a sudden they've got a business that they hate, you know, mm. what was the hardest part of making that change? So when you decided to really let your Meg flag fly. <laughs> what was the toughest part? It had to be liberating, I'm sure. So I, I get the pros. Yeah, yeah. What would you say the, the downside was? Oh, complete insecurity about whether or not it would work. And if it didn't work, what the hell was I going to do? Because I did not want to have to dress up and put on makeup and do my hair again, even if there were a job available locally. You didn't want to be reinstitutionalized. I guess not. No. So yeah, I mean, that first year was just, I thought I was doing all the right things, but there was no feedback telling me that I definitely was. So it was really just having to go on a wing and a prayer that first year. So what do you attribute the ability to get through those first two years? Is it grit? What would you call it? Yeah. Well, I mean, first I will start off by saying I didn't do it very gracefully. There was a lot of crying. But mostly I attribute it to surrounding myself with the right kind of people and figuring out, to use sort of a common phrase, like what fills my cup? Because running this business depletes it every single day. So I need to figure out how to fill it every single day. So in terms of the people, marriage counselor, which you know also is sort of personal counseling, um, business coach. My husband has always been supportive and way more confident in my ability to succeed than, than I have been. 
And I'm also a member of the XY Planning Network and that community there. I mean, forget all the people who actually work for XYPN, but just the community of other advisors who are members are hugely emotionally supportive. And then finding study groups or other smaller groups of colleagues who, whether they believed it or not, I don't really care, but could tell me I was awesome when I needed to hear that because it was just such a slog, such a freaking slog until I started to get that traction and started to get that confidence that, oh, okay, I'm not actually paying my mortgage yet, but I can see that I'm going to get there in the future. Yeah. And for me, the the self-care was exercise. I learned that I had to literally exercise every morning of the week. Again, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think that two of the things that I heard you say, yeah, that was definitely one of them. And and we are in a service, in a giving profession to do what we do and to do it the way, you know, that, that I think either of us would want. It takes a lot. It has especially taken a lot in 2020. So, you know, self-care, big thing. I agree with you completely. I, I think that the other thing that you mentioned was having a community and, and having a group of people, both local and otherwise, that you can count on, that you can talk to. One of the hardest things, I think, as an advisor and, and as somebody who's leading a firm is the fact that sometimes you feel like you don't have anybody to talk to. You're the one that everybody else talks to. Mm -hmm. And so having that group and peers is definitely been something that that I can see has been helpful for for me as well. Mm -hmm. Meg, when you think about if you had it to do over again, or you know, we're an action-oriented podcast. uh, When you think about if you were starting over or if you were somebody who said, you know what, I like what she's doing. Mm -hmm. I want to let my Jane or John flag fly, what would you suggest they do? How do you start? I think the two best decisions I made at the very beginning were joining XY Planning Network and getting really clear on a target market, on a niche market. I can probably attribute 90% of everything else that has happened in my business to those two decisions. XY Planning Network was really important because I'm not one of these people who has always itched to own her own business. I am a financial planner who became an entrepreneur as opposed to an entrepreneur who decided to open up a financial planning shop. The idea of starting an RAA scared the bejesus out of me. And so I really liked the story I told myself that, oh, I'll just join XY Planning Network and then they will basically take me by my hand and just walk me through the entire process and I don't have to figure out a damn thing for myself. And then, of course, you know, over the last four and a half years of belonging to them, the community there, as I mentioned earlier, has been great. I could probably step away from XY Planning Network right now and be okay, but I could not have started without XY Planning, the XY Planning Network. And then the other thing was the choice of the niche market. As I mentioned earlier, you can just center all of your decisions. Like that is the primary filter you use or lens you use to make all of your decisions. Who is your target market? What is your purpose? When I first started working with my business coach, I had all these glorious ideas about a podcast and an ebook. And I want to become the premier firm for women in tech. The first thing she made me get clear on is what is your firm's purpose? And that's, you know, very much wrapped up with target market. 
But if you get clear on those very few central filters or lenses for your firm, much like the analog in our work with our clients, right? You get clear on the client's values and what their ideal life wants to be like. Suddenly all the technical financial decisions just sort of drop out, distilled. It's like you don't even have to make the decision. They're made for you. So yeah, those are the two things. Filters, right? And forcing functions and and things that, yeah, I I think that folks should, again, pay attention to that because I, I think that especially earlier in your career, the more that you can do of that, the more clarity that you have. It really is, Meg, I think, a lot like what we do for our clients. We're really just, you know, it's the cobbler's kids sometimes, though, with no shoes, Mm -hmm. where it's so hard for us to figure out where we are and where we want to be and figure out the way in between, which is exactly what we do every day for other people. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it does, I think, whether it's a community or a coach take somebody from the outside reminding us of the things and prompting us to continue to do the things that we already know. Meg, any final words of wisdom? Let's see. I don't think I have additional words of wisdom. I think we've just hit upon the the niche market thing over and over. And really that has just been probably the single biggest influence on the success of my business. I never would have imagined that I'd have a sort of persistent wait list for the last two years. Yeah, there are plenty of people who will be jealous. I I have no doubt. And I think that the good thing about what you've built is that it's scalable when you decide that's the thing that you want to do. You've done the hard work of getting it right, getting it to a critical mass point where it's self-sustaining and supporting. And when you make the decision to throttle up, you'll be able to be able to do that. Yeah just leaves all the questions about how to run a successful business open for me to figure out someday. That's why you have a business coach. If you decide to go that route, you'll have somebody who can help you. Well, Meg, I really appreciate you coming on. Learned a lot. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, if you are listening and any of that sounds interesting to you, and I don't know how it couldn't, go over and check out Meg's website, flowfp.com. and see the way that she lays it out. I I think that she has a great grasp on exactly who it is that she wants to talk to, and you can go and see how she does that. I look forward to seeing you back in a couple of weeks, and we'll be back at you again real soon. To download what we believe is the single most important marketing, selling, and positioning tool for your practice, go to MaximumAdvisor.com slash scorecard now. Join the conversation in our private Maximum Advisor Facebook group and subscribe to this show anywhere you listen to podcasts or at MaximumAdvisor.com.